As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. After a very exciting Indy GP to open the month of May, we've got an Alex Polo win at the start of the season, which was nice to see. And we also have him taking the championship lead as well. It's Polo season, it seems like. We also had a McLaren 235. We had Joseph Newgard and robbed of a late podium. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. And we had some brilliant comeback drives from the likes of Scott Dixon and Graham Rahal as well. So plenty to get into on the pod this week. We'll talk about that and we'll set you up for the imminent start of practice for the Indy 500 as well. Of course, JR Hildebrand is alongside, getting very excited for the month of May. Even if you're not going to be driving, I'm sure you still get a little tingle of excitement when this month comes around. It's going to be an unusual one for you, I guess, with that... Um, uh, I, I guess that kind of absence of, of going into May without the 500, but uh, I guess, are you looking forward to it in a certain way to, to to kind of see what it's like from the sidelines a little bit more? Yeah, I think uh, you, you can, uh, every driver would, I think, take a slightly, have a slightly different feeling about, about Indy. For me, it's, or or racing in general, but but Indy maybe specifically. For me, it's uh, it's definitely a bummer not to be, not to be in the car this year. I've sort of known since, you know, the summer or fall or something of last year that just the way that things were shaking out, that it was going to be difficult to put something together. Um, you know, I've, uh, we've sort of talked about this on the pod before, so I won't go into it at any like real length here, but sometimes you just kind of have those years that it, it's, it's much more uncertain where things fall. And, um, you know, the position that I was in was, was one where at least for this year, wasn't really in a position, wasn't really in a place to, affect that you know from a sponsorship perspective a lot on my end and so without those types of options to pursue rides knowing that the engine constraints are high that there's just not there's a lot of full-time entries that there's not that many one-off spots uh and and kind of the obvious places for me to return to let's say at at foyt as the as as a clear example uh, you know, dependent on a lot of things that are really out of my control. Um, you know, it's it's not like this is coming out of nowhere that I'm not in the car. I think 
you know, I've done it for 12 years in a row now. It's coming coming out at the season or or this year kind of knowing that I'm not going to be in the car, you know, there there is some some disappointment there, but at the same time like it's just such an incredible event. It's been an incredible thing to be a part of. I, I don't view not doing it this year as uh, you know, really affecting one way or the other the options that I'll have in the future for coming back to it. So it's not like this is, you know, never going to happen again or something. And uh, and I'm, it's been an interesting process, frankly. I wish I had, in some respects, I wish I had known for sure that nothing was going to work out earlier because there were some things that kind of came, Ryan Hunter raised the, the, that decision at Dry and Reinbold taking as long as it did. Um, and even there being some options on the table at, at Foyt potentially kind of in the 11th hour um, have made it so that I can't commit really to doing anything else until it's been kind of late. I've talked to, I've been talking to teams and, and, and even Chevy and, and, you know, some folks kind of more on the supplier side, um, you know, on, on the team front, you know, as a little anecdote, like I, I've sort of chased it down and and initially I was met with a lot of enthusiasm for having me come join somebody else's squad. And I feel like ultimately that has ended up with people then becoming concerned that having somebody who might be a future competitor inside their organization, this is like something that they should be protecting against. So, um, yeah, it'll be an interesting That's a compliment at least. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, I, we we I was talking to Joseph about work, working with him, and and he we we and we're boys. We go back a long way. Like you know, just just to kind of you know be a be an extra set of eyes and ears to you know, for for guys like him in positions like he's in, and and he's not the only one that would be in the spot. But it doesn't take much to kind of get you over the hump if everything else is is basically in place. So. Uh, you know, I had that experience with Buddy Rice early in my career, and and then later, even at ECR, he was spotted for me, and and it was just so much more than being a spotter when you have somebody who really knows, you know, what's going on. Um, and so we, we've kind of had I've had some discussions like that that initially are very encouraging and and sound like a lot of fun, and then once it gets taken up the flagpole, it's kind of like no, like no, <laughs> nobody's 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 gonna let you be around. Um, so so anyway, so I, I'll I'm I. I'm still a little undetermined in terms of what I'm actually going to be doing. Um, I have I have committed to doing the Friday the Carb Day uh, midget race at IRP. So if anybody's out there, well, you can uh, you can come watch me there with with the O'Garas and and some of my old friends and uh, you know teammates from within the IndyCar series. So um, that should be fun. And but yeah, I'm, I'm looking for. I think it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting to see what it's like to be there on race day without being in the car, but. Um, I'm excited to have sort of a different perspective and uh, there's always something that you can sort of pick up and learn and, and move forward with. So this is what it is. Let me um, let me phrase a question in a slightly different way then and something I'm particularly interested in having spoken to, to Scott Dixon last week and you'll be able to read a feature with him on the hyphen race.com next week or whenever you're listening to this podcast, I guess it'll be the week of practice starting. But he talked, well, I'd asked him, how he's approaching the 500 this year after last year, the the, the the pain and suffering basically of missing out on a a second 500 win by, you know, one miles per hour with his, with his pit lane penalty. And uh, I guess that's even worse for someone like Scott in the position that he's in because he's won the six championships. He's, you know, has a lot of poles at the speedway, but his 
Obviously, Indy 500 win tally is not where he expects it to be at, at one. Obviously, hoping that he'd won a lot more. And he, he basically said that he was just treating the Indy 500 like any other race now coming into this one. And that would be a kind of normal approach for any dri- any other driver at any other race. I think that would be kind of a normal approach to things is like, just take it week by week, focus on what you can control. Don't let things that you can't control get in the way. You know, that all, all that kind of usual racing driver stuff. But here in Scott, who... You know, I guess so much of his kind of legacy now just kind of depends on the 500 because of the fact that he's won these six championships. The only thing left for him really is to win, you know, more 500s. And to hear him talk about him treating the event like like any other was quite unusual. But he, he kind of built on that a bit by saying that he's felt like he's been to the 500 in the past. And I am paraphrasing a little bit here. Make sure you go and read his actual quotes in the in the feature. But he's come to the he's come to the 500 and the the ceremony and the pomp and the the everything that surrounds the 500 can mean that you don't always enjoy the event as much as you probably should do as if you were just a normal fan like coming to the track and i have to say like it was my first 500 last year at the track and i obviously absolutely loved all of the kind of unusual and even the usual um elements of the all all of that kind of stuff that's around the event like um uh, the rookies doing the the milk in the cow and all that kind of stuff, you know, like that that kind of vibe of the stuff that's a bit more unusual about the 500 that you don't get from any other sporting events. But I can definitely see what Scott means when he starts to talk about how the the pressure of all the media commitments, all of the the stuff that you have to do in the build up as a driver, and then now we're talking about the minutiae of what it takes to actually get a car to win the 500 in you know, how complicated the the aero is, how complicated the, the setups are, how complicated all of the the twelve month build up to the races from from you know the race finishing in the previous year to the the race coming around again the next year. I can totally underse- understand what he means when, you know, he ov- he obviously loves the event and it's obviously one of the most important things in his life and, and has been for, you know, well over twenty years now. But at the same time I can understand him wanting to treat this like any other event and try and put some of that stuff to one side because of how sort of complicated and um, how much it must impact your build-up and your preparation to the event that you must kind of not enjoy some of the 500s. So uh, I guess, do you kind of share that opinion slightly and, and wonder what it might be like for you this year not having to have all of that kind of weighing down on you as you approach the event and you can just you know come to the 500 and enjoy those aspects of it? Yeah, I think it may be just a riff on what Scott was saying. I think that there is an element of, especially when you're in a, I mean, I can, I can kind of speak to this from being at ECR that there was a, an expectation that, especially when I was full time in 2017 there, and it was just Ed and I, like there was not, we did not run a third car. So it was just the two of us. There was no difference in the way that the team was operating, um, you know, at a team that knows that they're bringing, everything they've got to this one event to be successful, like that they're abnormally uh, prepared and and suited to winning or performing at a high level and winning this race relative to even all the others on the schedule, potentially that you can kind of, it just as a group, it, it's hard to have like a free and loose environment basically to operate in. And and that as a driver, you it's hard not to feel sucked into that in terms of the expectations that you're that like you're here to win. Like you're here, you're here to run in the top run at the front all day long. You're here to qualify at the front, you're here to run at the front. Um it, it's hard to kind of free yourself of that 
mindset or of that feeling basically. And, and so with that in mind, then the competitive aspect of being there over the course of two weeks can, can start to wear you down a little. I mean, I can't, I don't think for me that that was something that I really felt the adverse effects of that in a, in a really extreme way. And that was in part because when I was there, we were executing at a high level and, and even sometimes still surprising ourselves. I mean, those were a few of the years that, you know, ECR had the only two Chevys in the top nine or, or whatever. So you kind of know that you're still, that you are meeting that expectation. But to Scott's point, when you talk about community day autograph sessions, running around all over the, you know, the city of Indianapolis over the course of that week to various engagements and all this kind of stuff. And it's raining one day and it's, you know, there it's like what you'd really like to be doing is just kicking back, getting your workouts in, you know, not having to think too much about it, that the competitive side of it does start to weigh on you and you start to become frustrated with having to do all of that other stuff. Like you want to be able to just focus on the race. And the reality of it is, which I think is a little bit of probably what Scott feels is because he's been doing it for so much longer. And those expectations are at Chip Ganassi racing, at least as high as, you know, as I've experienced, you know, at ECR, even in those, even in those years that, uh, it, it, it just doesn't, you don't let yourself kind of free up. You're, you're so focused on the, on getting to race day and doing all the little things and executing at a high level and, and, taking every moment as a team, as a driver, but that you have off between those on-track sessions to try to get that last little bit, like there's got to be something that you can do to be a little better on race day. And you almost start to convince yourself that just thinking about it 20, like worrying about it 24 seven is part of that process because it's kind of the natural thing that you do. And so, uh, you know, I, I can, I can definitely appreciate that for Scott. I mean, he's, on the one hand, at, within the industry, we all know how good Scott Dixon is and he's won six championships and we know that the Indianapolis 500 has just, uh, you know, it's evaded him sort of more wins at, at Indy. I'm sure uh, the flip side to that, I guess, is as fans and as people in the industry, you can also sort of zoom out a little bit and think like Scott Dixon could be a five-time Indianapolis 500 winner by now. Just if you just simply look at the races that have occurred, what are the, there, there he's, he's one, one thing away literally in at least three or four other 500s from being the guy leading the race in the last stint at, at the very end last year included. Um, so whether, you know, I, I think there, there, I always, I always kind of bring up the caveat that you don't ever know what's going to happen until it's actually the last lap and it's actually gone down, right? So so to say that he would have won those races, just like Elio Castroneves forever saying that there was these two or three events that you know he would have won. It was like, well, you weren't actually even in the lead when you somehow got, you know, got got taken out of the those situations. And Scott's kind of in the same boat, but nonetheless, his his percentage would would be higher i think had some of those things not happened and so uh, and what was his, and what would his legacy look like you know from the outside do we rate dario franchitti even having won fewer championships higher than scott does the average person think of think of those two how do we rate in championships versus indianapolis 500s probably within the context of indycar you rate indy 500 wins as being 
for all intents and purposes, like more important to your long-term legacy than, than championships. And so, uh, you know, I can definitely, I guess I, I say all of that just to give a little context from a driver's perspective to, I think what he's, what he's feeling. And, um, at the end of the day, Scott Dixon in particular is, I think one of those drivers that just wakes up in the morning, ready to go. Like, there's no there's no process to get in the mindset of being ready to go. He just gets in the car and he goes and does what he does. So if there is anybody who could just show up on race day and be checked out until he puts the visor down and goes and you know enjoys himself and you know up until that point and then locks in, uh, it's it's him. So I I hope for his sake that he's able to find that balance and uh, you know I mean he's he he's he's somebody who does have something it's it's sort of like trusting that you do actually have something particularly special at this place that it's not because you've just worked harder than everybody else here he is one of those guys that just no matter what is going to be running up front at that event so yeah it'd be interesting to interesting to kind of follow that and see how his month goes yeah, definitely just want to reassert that at no point in that interview did he say he hated the Indy 500 or that he didn't want to go back. You know, it's very, very much uh, very much coming at it from the angle that he feels like he wants to enjoy this one more than he has previous ones. So it's not necessarily that he hasn't enjoyed previous ones. It's just that this one is, he, he's, he's acutely aware of how easily an Indy 500 can slip away from you as you've, you know, rightfully described there. And coming into this one, he just desperately wants to make sure that he enjoys this whole event when he hasn't necessarily done that as much in, in the past. Yeah, I think I think the more that you do them, and Scott's done even more than I have, obviously, you start to realize that you're missing out on something by being a part of this thing. And so I yeah, I, I totally I can totally get that. And uh you know, I've I had that experience kind of already in my career of recognizing that I'm, I'm actually really fortunate just to be able to come and do this and to be in a position where I'm getting, I'm still just getting paid to show up and run this event, you know, even as a one-off that, that that's, that's a unique scenario to be in. Like, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in control of my own destiny in terms of how that works out. There are other guys that, you know, have shown an incredible aptitude at, at this place at doing well here that don't, that aren't in this position. Um, you know, so I had better, I had better kind of take it. So that's maybe for a different reason that, <laughs> uh, you know, this is kind of recognizing that this, there's no given here, but, um, but yeah, for Scott, I can definitely appreciate his point of view. And, uh, and I bet he'll, you know, I'm sure he'll be better off for it. He's already pretty relaxed. Like it's not like he's a high strung guy, <laughs> but, um, can't hurt going into the race with a little extra energy, you know? Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, JR, there was a little motor race happening at the weekend that we should probably talk about before we get too uh, stuck in the Indy 500, although both of our minds have kind of already switched to that and forgotten about the Indy GP already, sadly. But <laughs> we can't do that because uh, Alex Plow will not be happy with us. So we should uh, we should get into this a little bit. Um, obviously, Alex Plow, the winner of the GMR Grand Prix, um, he talked, uh, I was interested, JR, he talked about uh, after the race, the, the Laguna Seca win, in in 2022 another one with a a massive winning margin over 30 seconds in that one he was 16 seconds clear in in this race uh, i think the key part of the race was the penultimate pit stop where he got ahead of christian lungard and kind of asserted his lead and then he had the clean air um and then was ab- able to kind of see off uh, lungard and, and award in the in the outlaps after that stop and and that really helped him out i think that was probably the the key to the win but i think all of the other drivers were kind of pretty uh pretty sure that Polo had them had them paced i think for for that race um aside from a few circumstances maybe going in in pato's favor it turned out that they didn't but that's one of those uh, races and i'm sure we'll get on to a little bit of pato's race um shortly but yeah you mentioned the laguna seca race that that big win um and he said that came too late in in 2022 and it kind of got me thinking you know even though he started last year with four top sevens in in the first five races that it seems even though we know that winning the most number of races in a season isn't necessarily the most important thing, uh, which was proven perfectly last season by Will Power's one win and and Joseph Newgarden's five and, and Power winning the title. But it kind of made me think with Polo's remarks there about that win coming too late, whether it's become so, so important in IndyCar, uh, at least especially over the last few years, that you get that win in the first half of the year or you get one win in the first half of the year to give you that momentum to kind of see off some of those other competitors. Because when you look at Polo's um results on paper to start last year they were really good um but he was lacking that win and um uh, i guess the indy gp last year is where it started to kind of come off the rails a little bit for him and it seems like uh, you know this is the perfect way to to start may for him what do you think about that whether you know that win in the first half of the year has become one of the crucial components to uh, a title charge in, in indycar nowadays i think it's important for a couple of reasons we, we obviously know that it's not absolutely critical it could be done without winning a race early in the season but i think actually just comparing alex's season thus far this year to pato who hasn't won a race and there's so there's a few layers to this one is it does make a difference in terms of your points haul at the end of the year that's it's as simple as that like being able to notch wins throughout the season at this point in the indycar series from from when Alex was a champion two years ago. This has even become this has become more important just in the last two years. That there are so many drivers in capable race winning, you know, capable machinery now. That has even changed. That it's it, it's sort of like looking at Pato's season. He needs it, the fact he's he's had a ton of podiums already. He's he's been in the mix every weekend. Just the fact that he's not leading the championship with that having, he's finished second three times now, I think, out of 
five races. So the fact that he's not leading the championship with that record, I think it, it just in a um, kind of like a, a dollars and cents fashion here, like what's the actual scenario and how does this play out over the over the season tells you all you need to know. So I think it is important. It is important just in the context of your points throughout the season to be able to be notching wins. Doing that earlier in the season gives you, he's Alex Pillow is now in the points lead. It gives him a, that little bit of margin to be able to work with. So that that sort of plays into, I think, the second half of my my thought about this, which is just from a morale and a team perspective, okay, yes, it, it gets you going. Like it, there's you're building some momentum there's there's that aspect of it that is important to have until you get that win you're kind of like trying to get the monkey off your back if you're one of these contenders over the course of the year you can you can feel that a little bit in the mclaren camp i feel like that they've been so close on a bunch of occasions now and we'll kind of get to that in a second but just haven't actually gotten over the hump so is that starts to annoy you at a point basically uh, just just on the principle of it, basically, not not having anything to do with anything else, but you start to feel like you're just coming up short, and and so it, it you, you can't even though you know that it's not always in your control, and and you're doing everything that you can do, and that you need to just stick to the process. It does start to linger a little when that continues to happen. Um, the other side to that is. It does also just allow you to relax a little bit. So, you know, in, in Alex's situation here, it, you, you mentioned him referencing that Laguna came too late last year. Okay, well, now it's come in a, rel- in a relative sense early. So they can go into Indy, which is now single points, kind of knowing knowing that if even if they have a bad race, that they're not totally out of the thick of the hunt and and it does it just kind of changes the the situation you're in these teams all of these teams and drivers are operating at such a high level right now that i don't really think that this dramatically impacts how they show up weekend to weekend i think they all they have all had to become mentally and emotionally incredibly strong and and robust when it comes to sort of resisting going down that rabbit hole of of getting worried and and feeling like you're just on the short end of the stick or something but there's no question that by notching these wins early there are there are both these kind of psychological and and just kind of functional gains that you get from doing that um that can kind of free you up to be a be a little bit more aggressive in terms of your strategies in future races to allow yourself that room for Kind of allowing your allowing yourself some space for failure, basically by making a wrong choice or doing that type of thing, and still being able to recover from it. So, I think for kind of on both sides of that rationale, I, I definitely feel the same way as as Alex has uh, has expressed. And and for him, just to talk about their unique situation, last year there was a lot of turmoil at this point in the season already in terms of what his his kind of future outlook was going to be and and how all that was going down so um i guess that sort of leads into the next the next topic here which is that he <laughs> was sitting in between two drivers with papaya shirts on uh you know after, at the end of this whole thing there's been no shortage of speculation that he's going to be joining Aero mclaren next year can you talk about maybe just that dynamic 
uh, you know, the, the sort of feeling that's surrounding the situation at the moment, uh, you know, maybe what that, did that come up at all in the post race, even with Alex? Yeah, Nathan Brown from the Indy Star did ask him um, whether seeing McLaren finish two three five had sort of accelerated his mind in terms of um, <laughs> the the silly season, and and he said, of course not. It's too early. It's May. Um, but as we as we already know from the court documents that emerged last year, that Alex is unable to talk to other teams until September anyway. So you know, asking him about his future in the press conference is an important part of being a journalist, but you just know what the answer is going to be. You're not going to get anything out of it because, you know, he's not going to breach his contract in a in a live press conference. So, yeah, it's an interesting scenario for sure. I think the big questions around um, Alex's move, um, at least on my side and, and some other journalists who kind of follow this this whole thing and, and even um, just interested, you know, people who are interested in IndyCar, you know why would why would Alex want to leave Ganassi? That was the big question when all of when all of this kicked off. He just won a championship in twenty twenty one. You know Scott Dixon is not going to be around forever, and Ganassi are going to be looking to to put their eggs in a basket. And you know if you're Alex Pilato, that that looks like good career progression. It looks like a a nice safe seat, and you know arguably um, you know people would some some people would say the best team, some people would say one of the best team. However you see that personally. Um, you know, he seemed to be set by winning a championship with this team and, and being in the perfect position, you know, proving in his first season with the team that he was the the person who could push it forward. And you wonder why he would leave for McLaren, who had sco- had scored strong results in in 2021 and 2022, obviously, but have seemed to have always had a, a couple of little things just kind of hanging over them, like the, the, the consistency and the execution of their either their championships or their races has been... Um, you know, hit and miss at times. Um, definitely since, uh, you know, Pato Ward came to the team, you know, he seems to be the one who really has to drag the pace out of this car, um, uh, especially in those early seasons, 2020, 2021. It was really him and him alone who could really extract the the pace and the potential out of this car. And, and he did that through, you know, being very ragged which is kind of the opposite of Alex's style. We've st- we've spoken about this on the podcast before. He's very precise. And this is in, in no no way a criticism of either driver. They both have just have different ways of extracting the pace in the car. And if you watch an onboard of Alex's, you know, the hands are very still. He's very accurate, very precise. He likes the car to be quite neutral. Um, and we know from, you know, speaking to people at Ganassi from, from behind the scenes, how deep he goes into the analysis and, and perfecting the car to a point where he can drive it that way. And, you get the sense that even though Pato will do all those similar kind of analytical uh, breakdowns in, you know, when he's not in the car, you get the feeling that Pato is much more of a field driver who, you know, will really take the car to the ragged edge if that's what it needs to to extract the pace from it. You know, Alex can do that on occasion, but you definitely feel like Pato's a driver who's, you know, the, the one you would pick in that scenario to, 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 to extract that pace. So two different drivers with two very different, you know, levels of attributes. But I guess at the time when it was being talked about whether Alex would would move to McLaren. It didn't really seem like Alex's style really fitted the team. But then, you know, we move into into 2023. Um, you know, Alex Rossi has talked about how um, compliant his car has been and the fact that arguably he's too far the other way in the sense that they need to extract more pace out of the car, which has never really usually been a problem for, for McLaren in the past. So there's definitely, definitely signs of progress and Pato doesn't have to, you know, I think Felix's performance is rising over the past year has has shown how more compliant the car has become because he's able to consistently reach Pato's level a bit more often um 
And, and I think that shows the level of development that McLaren have had. So if that was ever a thought that Alex Pelot had, whether he was going to join the team, uh, the development of their car definitely seems to be something that would no longer be a problem. Um, and seeing the team score um, a two, three and five here kind of culminating in all of the pace they've had over the first part of the season, it must be you know quite an attractive proposition. I guess the other side of it is the F1 side where I guess the maybe the pessimists you would call them. Uh, I'd definitely count myself in, in in that camp in this scenario that I just don't think Alex is going to get himself onto the F1 grid through through this deal with, you know, moving to McLaren. I, I'd love to think that was the case and I'd love to be this, uh, you know, positive person who wants to see all of these IndyCar drivers getting, getting a chance in Formula One, but uh, I'd, I'd don't think they will. And also I think it's a very risky career move for reasons we've talked about on the pod before, where if you go into a midfield team in, in Formula One, you've not come through Formula Two where you've learned all the tracks, you don't know about the tyre. The development process is very different in Formula One. You know, you've got 500 people on a team. Um, you know, it's it's all these reasons we've, we've spoken about before is very different. And many reasons why we spoke to Kyle Kirkwood about it on the pod, that an American driver would probably struggle in that scenario. And, and although they might be a good enough driver, just over one lap fundamentally to be able to go and do Formula One, um, you know, with all those kind of things surrounding what comes with that. Um, it's very difficult. It would be very difficult for them to be a success there. But I guess what we can say is that the the paddock believes it's a foregone conclusion that Alex Pelot will go to McLaren at the end of this season. Um, obviously, with that contract situation that we talked about before, uh, I don't think anyone really can say for sure. But uh, even if he won the 500 with Ganassi, it just feels like it feels like too much water's gone under the bridge now, and and that you know Polo is going to be going to be heading to McLaren at the end of the year. But I, I guess the fundamental point of everything I've said there is that it looks it looks like a much more um, appetising career move based on how far McLaren have come, even just in the last like six months, and and seeing how they've added the the extra car for Alexander Rossi and how quickly that has been competitive. Um, you know, I think there's a scenario here where those three McLaren drivers could all be in the top five in points if things had gone slightly differently. Like you look at, um, you know, Pato's got the best uh, average start in the in the whole field. Um, Felix is third. <laughs> so uh, qualifying wise, Felix hasn't had a problem. Obviously, uh, Texas was the, uh, I guess, the the big missed opportunity for him having the pole there and, and and crashing out of that race and not being able to to convert the points there. But I think that's two or three top tens in a row now for him. Uh, Rossi's been on some similar runs with top tens, had the suspension issue in Long Beach and then had the pit crash in Texas. So just a couple of tweaked results here and there for for those guys. And they're right there with Pato and, and right there in, in the points. So yeah, I think all that is to say that McLaren looks like a more and more appealing option Um as, as the races go on and if there were any questions as to why um, Alex Pelot was going to leave Ganassi it, it still seems like a very bold decision to make based on what the future of Ganassi might look like with him there and Scott eventually moving on we don't know what's going to happen with Marcus and and uh, you know if they're if they're going to pay him and he's going to stay um, so I guess we don't know what's going to happen there and it still looks like a, a, a fairly odd decision, but it looks like a less of an odd decision now that, that Polo would go go over to McLaren based on how they're performing this year in, in IndyCar at least. Yeah, I mean, I, I I honestly don't have a lot to add to that. I think that I think that fundamentally he's he's looking at a scenario where the the performance gap between those two teams is negligible and 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 that extends to the Indianapolis 500 as we're 
being realistic about it. Um, so it's not not a huge difference in terms of what that's going to look like for him, even at, at Indy at the at the most important race. And you know, sometimes once you get your once you get your head around, or or kind of once you decide that you're going to have a change of scenery, that that's just what you decide to do for that reason alone sometimes. And so I think that I agree with you that I think the F1, the lure of F1 was a big part of this initially. I think at this point, even just within the last year, you're probably thinking, I don't know, is, is this team on the rise and getting the investment required to compete absolutely for at least as long a period of time as, you know, Chip Ganassi racing is going to be, what's the ceiling of these teams from that perspective? You could make an argument, the ceiling of Aero McLaren, because it's got the backing of McLaren and they've shown exactly like you said, they've shown just adding a third car was in terms of the on-track results. I'm sure behind the scenes, it was not seamless, but in terms of the on-track results, just adding another super competitive car without, without any issues. So uh, I think all, for all of those reasons, you you have to look at these squads as being, you know, both extremely, uh, you know, enticing in terms of what they what they provide for you. I agree that at Ganassi, you're locking yourself into being the guy long term, but maybe to Alex, that just doesn't matter, you know. And and so we'll see what see what sort of comes of it all. Yeah, so we had Alexander Rossi uh, rounding out the podium behind Pato Award in third, and we had Felix Rosenquist in fifth. Uh, before we move on to indie practice week, which I really want to talk to you about, JR, we should round up a couple of other, just uh, some storylines that we would usually go into a little bit more detail on, but we, we want to try and crack through all this and get as much information into this pod as physically possible. So we'll definitely mention Christian Lungard taking his first pole, and uh, he definitely you know, pushed Alex Plow hard through the majority of this race until really the last stint when he had to do that that really long penultimate stint on the on the hards and he did struggle a little bit at, at times through the race, but he did say after the race that there was times where he thought he might finish uh, outside the top 10. So uh, to bag that uh, fourth was was very good. He definitely benefited from Felix Rosenquist battling with uh, Colton Herter in the closing stages there behind and was able to just uh, consolidate that that result Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden um, both made their way past Colton Herter as did Marcus Ericsson actually as, as Colton's tyres went away towards the end there um, we should mention Scott who was involved in that first lap incident where uh, Kyle Kirkwood and Graham Rahal came together uh, Graham fell to the back of the field uh, as did Scott um, Graham had a puncture so he had to pit Scott um, drop into 16th I think and then basically overcut every single pit stop and worked his way back up to 6th which was a, a pretty phenomenal result Joseph Newgarden we should mention him because um, yeah he had a really slow last pit stop which probably cost him um, a podium if not definitely a top 5 um, he was really low key under the radar of the whole race and I imagine in my race report it would have been quite difficult to explain how he'd got to 3rd if he had finished there but uh Luckily for me and my uh, limited writing ability, <laughs> he uh, he had a slow final stop there, which was uh, obviously sad for for his championship. And kind of in theme with his season of uh, poor timing and bad luck after uh, Benjamin Pedersen spun in front of him in qualifying and cost him his his last lap. So that was definitely a, a disappointing one. And Graham Rahal, we mentioned, he managed to fight his way back to tenth with a, a super long first stint there, which really put him in a good position. Um, almost kind of did a stint long enough to kind of put him into 
the same kind of uh, strategy window as his uh, teammate who'd started in the <laughs> at the lead of the race. So that was a really interesting one and a good one to watch. Definitely recommend you go back and watch the YouTube highlights of that race because it was one of those that I did say to JR off air at the start of this. Um, we could spend uh, 20 minutes or, or three hours on this one trying to unpick all of the strategy calls with the soft tyre being much quicker, but also degrading a lot faster as well and the, the harder tyre being slower, but, but lasting through the stint. So definitely an interesting one. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. practice week we've got tuesday to thursday where the guys will just be pounding round um just trying to perfect their setups for uh mostly the race i guess we'll probably see some some reads on qualifying from tuesday to thursday obviously fast friday is the big one for practicing for qualifying where they'll get the increased boost and that's when you'll see the majority i guess of the the practice qualifying but give us a flavor of tuesday to thursday because i always find that's the most difficult to kind of work out basically what you're watching because I guess at the speedway you've got all of the tow times um it's very difficult to look at the times and really work out exactly what's going on so uh, I guess the the key takeaway from that is don't look at the times necessarily um although you can kind of pick up some themes I guess of who the kind of top guys are in terms of the times over the Tuesday to Thursday let's say over every session but just in isolation of one session we're not watching for who's the fastest driver who's set the fastest lap time what are we looking for in, in your eyes? What would you be looking for if you were trying to get an idea of your competition, where everyone kind of stacks up? What what are the kind of things you're looking for? Yeah, to your point, it's hard to really glean anything relevant from the actual lap times at the end of the day each day. I, I would I would agree, though. I, I've kind of changed my tone on this probably over the last 10 years that... <laughs> You know, because it's it's almost like just out of out of principle, you say that as from from drivers and teams and people that are there, like just don't pay attention. It's they're all tow times, so it doesn't mean anything in terms of how fast the car is, in terms of what it's doing in traffic. You know, whatever those are the things that you're that you actually care about. You care about how how fast is the car, even in race trim by itself. You care about how good it is in traffic, how easily how how close can you run to the car in front of you. Um, and you care about as you, if you do start to trim out, you know, what are you getting out of those different trim steps? And, and does that kind of jive with what your expectations are given wind tunnel data and, and all the rest of it? So the, the things that are, 
you're, you're checking against data that you sort of already have either from the wind tunnel or from simulation or whatever are what's the car doing on its own. So you're trying to understand, do we understand the aero map and are we getting the same results that we're expecting to get here as we look forward to qualifying, depending on the weather. Last time I looked at the weather, it does look, it looks particularly dicey as you get later in the week. So depending on how that looks on a day-to-day basis, the closer you get to fast Friday with fast Friday, potentially looking like you're, you get a rain out or you're not going to get as much time as you think you're going to get that might increase the likelihood that you see more, uh, even to the lower boost levels that you see more low downforce running at times over the week, just for that reason, not because you're getting it, not because as a driver or your team, you're getting a particularly representative feel of what the car is going to be like in those qualifying conditions without the boost. You do get some sense of it for sure. Uh, you, you, the car will be, on the limit, just going a little slower, basically in the same way that it would be with, with higher, with more horsepower. So you don't get nothing out of doing that or going through those trim steps, but mostly you're actually just going to be checking the data. Like we think that the car is going to gain this much speed. The aero balance is going to shift this much when we take these parts off and change this wing angle and, and do all of these you know various things that you're going to do to get the car into qualifying setup that's a bigger part of it this year because you just got more parts that you're going to end up running probably in race trim, but not for qualifying. So as you go through that trim list, you know, as a team, you really want to know, particularly if your time is going to be short, that when you, when you do go to that trim step, whatever you think that is based on the conditions that you're not going to have gone, you're not going to go out on track and feel like you needed to add, you know, half a turn of front wing to actually be able to get it into the window that you need, need it to be. Um, but for the most part, what's happening during the race or during, during these practice days is just going to be working on the car to get it to be as good in traffic as it can be, which, which in essence is sort of simply put comes down to trying to get the car so you can run as close to another car through turn two and turn four, basically as you can getting on leading onto the straightaways. That's what's important here. So how close can I be flat behind the car in front of me and, you're going to try to you're you're trying to go out and replicate that scenario as often as possible with changes to the car to try to see okay the easy thing to do always is just add more front wing but you get to a point where that does start to destabilize the car and so and and becomes you've seen i think some of the accidents that we've seen over the last I would probably make the argument that most of the accidents that you see in the race are a result of cars unless when you see a car that's running in traffic and they just lose it and end up in the fence like more often than not about 50 percent of those are more are because that car is running probably more forward arrow balance than is actually ideal for that setting as a means of hoping that you can hang on to that because it does help you run a little closer to the cars when you're in like heavy traffic um so you'll take the week of practice to try to not do that basically and work on the mechanical balance of the car to see if you can find whether it's more grip or better turn in or whatever it is that kind of ends up affecting the way the car gets to the center to the exit to be to to sort of run right up behind somebody um the only point that i was going to make just about the lap times is any particular car in isolation on any particular day where they stack up in the timesheet doesn't really tell you anything but 
I, I have sort of just with a, a, enough years of watching through practice and, and kind of seeing how things do end up shaking out either in qualifying or the race that typically the cars that can throw up the biggest numbers, particularly if you saw all the Penske's or all the Andretti's or all the Ganassi's all up front, that is indicative like there, cause there have definitely been times where I've been out there and it has not been a matter of just having a perfect toe lap to be able to run that same lap time. Like I've definitely been in some scenarios over the last four or five years where you're, you're looking at that number, just like there is no way in hell I can run 227 today. Like that's just not going to happen. And so that does speak a little bit to the quality of those cars in part because it's just become harder with the arrow. And so that, that I guess to me, actually this year will be the thing that'll be interesting is the cars in essence with these new arrow parts have like more free downforce, basically more efficient downforce that all the cars are going to have. And so we saw that towards the end of the race at Texas. So a very different end of that event when everybody's on like kind of equal tires the fact that guys were able to run too wide, both cars flat out is not something that we've seen in Texas since the cars all together had a lot more downforce. So I think uh, just to kind of tie a bow on that, that's what I'd be. If you're watching particularly if you're actually watching the live stream of practice, um, you know, that's something that I think will be interesting to, to sort of look for. Like the last few years, if you've been if you've been three cars back, even in a train of cars in practice, it's hard to do anything. Like you're kind of just stuck in line. Um, this year, I'm I'm sort of predicting that we might see a difference from that perspective. Like you'll see cars that are further back in a train of cars still able to make moves and work their way forward. That's really interesting because I guess speaking to some of the engineers, the the question when you add more downforce, which is what what are happening with these aero parts, and if you want to learn more about these we're not going to go into too much detail now um but you can go to the hyphenrace.com when you listen to this and there should be a feature explaining some of those new parts of this year or some of the changes um i i guess when you speak to some of the engineers uh about this about the the adding of more downforce the question is always obviously it's great to add more downforce that should in theory make the racing better but you do run the risk of you know, creating more dirty air and making that more difficult for cars behind to pass. So there's always like a a threshold, I guess, where you want to add as much downforce as possible, but you don't want to make the down, you know, the the wake of the car too dirty that the cars behind can't, you know, get into that. So I guess the it always used to be that you ran an Indy car as close to the ground as possible at the speedway, and that was kind of how you. Uh, I guess that's just kind of how you did it. But more recently, with these aero parts, it's become a, a little bit more like F1, I guess, in the sense of the, the simulation tools are telling the team that they should run a certain number of aero parts in a certain way and they need to run a certain ride height to get that number and that's what they'll have to do when they get to the speedway what we've been talking about there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday they'll be checking that the simulation that they've done actually matches what they see on the track and that that ride height with those parts on actually gives them the number they're expecting and then they'll kind of work backwards and take some of those parts off or add more parts on to try and see you know how they can tweak that and, and how that can improve but I guess the question always at the speedway at the moment is when you add that more downforce, when does it get too much to the point where it does affect the the wake of the car? So uh, I guess what are you expecting from that perspective? Yeah, I guess my, my feeling is, I guess to touch on a couple of those things, you're definitely right that in the last two years, particularly th- this all started like this kind of ride height sensitivity or, or that aspect of the setup of the cars relative to the aero parts really started with the introduction of the 
um, you know, they've kind of been labeled as like barge boards, but these pieces that come off the, you know, like a strake basically that comes off the forward side of the underwing. And that, so I, I, so I went in 2021 was the first year that we had those. It was my first year at Foyt. Um, just as like a little side note to kind of that, what that experience was like within a team, we knew that that all the data showed that that should be more downforce to run that part it should be a little bit more downforce at the front of the car, which was part of the reason to introduce the part that prior to that with the universal kit, particularly with the addition of the aero screen, it was really difficult to get the front wing to work adequately basically when you were in traffic like you'd be cranking so much front wing in that the front wing was basically stalling in terms of how much additional front downforce you were getting and so you kind of ended up just at this in like no man's land that you could keep cranking it in and it wasn't actually doing anything maybe it was actually getting worse because it was affecting the wing was getting so much angle to it that it was affecting the airflow over the rest of the car in a way that was just detrimental to like total downforce and so that was a, a part of the you know rationale for adding that piece. So on paper, it's more downforce. On paper, it was also there was also this whole ride height range that you were as teams expected to sort of understand in terms of what was going on. But to your point, to your to your kind of first point, traditionally you just run the car. You run the car quite low. You want to make sure that it's not bottoming through corners because you know that that's affecting the underwing and, and all this kind of stuff. But you you definitely weren't scared of the car being too low and that being like really dramatic in terms like that would be something you'd go out you'd run a couple laps you'd realize the car is touching like over the bump in turn three or whatever and then you just come in and they'd raise it up a flat and you know a, a mill or whatever and then you'd go back out and, and do it again so it, at Foyt that year I was the extra car like a late addition Sebastian Bourdais and Justin Taylor were were you know the lead primary car on that, on that crew. So they were the first ones that tried these new parts, um, went out, hadn't, you know, had adjusted the, the, the ride heights a little, but basically left the existing attitude of the car in terms of rake and kind of overall ride heights, the same went out and basically were like, this is terrible. (laughs) The car is, the car is super nervous. It's totally unpredictable. Like it, it seems like it's, more downforce or more, you know, I feel you know, Sebastian was kind of felt like he was getting a big COP shift through the corner, uh, you know, air balance shift through the corner. All of these things are like negatives, right? Like you don't, you don't want any of this stuff happening. And so <laughs> the thought within the team was, is this a situation where to make this work, we're going to have to totally change the mechanical package on the car. And if that's the case, we weren't, we weren't totally displeased with the way the car was without them. So we don't, we have a finite, finite number of time to sort this out. Mm-hmm. Um, on our side, we sort of, so we, we were going to just bail on it basically on the, on the, on the one car that year. Um, ultimately we decided, well, the, the arrow sheet does say, it doesn't say that you should expect for the car to be awful if you ran the, the kind of traditional ride heights, but it does say the car should work better with this different ride height setup, which was actually nose up. So it was, which is not uh, entirely uncommon, even at places like the Speedway. Um, it used to be like way back in the day with the old car, you'd run nose up to reduce the drag of the car. Like that was how you sort of trimmed basically on mile and a half ovals and things like that. 
with this car, I've even run some setups over time that are a little nose up with more front wing cranked in basically because on your, particularly on your own, it doesn't always work in traffic, but it kind of desensitizes the shift of aero balance to the corner because you're just keeping the front wing, which is quite sensitive further away from the ground. Um, long story short, we put the parts on, went to like the max, you know, uh, arrow, uh, uh, the, the sort of max change in ride height that was recommended by Pratt and Miller and went out and it was like, oh no, we have to run these. <laughs> like this is very even, despite the fact that mechanically this doesn't make sense to be running the front of the car that far off the ground. Essentially what was happening was that by running these tr- kind of traditional, more nose down ride heights, it was choking the underwing because these parts extend off the front of the underwing. And so that it was in essence, making the front of the underwing longer and closer to the ground than it would normally be. And you were changing, you're screwing up the sort of the way the vortices pull off of these strikes off the front of the car. And so anyway, I, with all of that in mind, all of these parts, because they're all attached to the underwing are all super ride height sensitive. And so you will definitely go through that process of a lot like an F1 car or, you know, I think back to even like the LMP cars when they were like these full development process, you might spend all practice during a weekend, not touching the car from a mechanical perspective, just to try to maximize the aero update that you had weekend to weekend. And like, cause if you were going to, if you could maximize the aero update, that was going to be six tenths, like the best you could possibly get out of, you know, optimizing the mechanical setup, of the car was like two. So that's going to be a little bit of the process that goes on this year. And, and I guess just quickly to, to say my piece about what I think that's going to result in, assuming that teams are going to make these new parts work and they're going to be more downforce, that we know that they are efficient downforce because otherwise you wouldn't be running them. You'd just be cranking more wing in and doing whatever else. That at Indianapolis in particular, the cars, especially in race trim, are so close to their kind of terminal velocity by the end of the straightaway that... I just think, I think because we know they're pretty efficient downforce, I it could be, I could end up being wrong about this, but because we know they're pretty efficient downforce and, and so they're probably not really changing like the, the overall shape of the, and, and sort of drag component to what you're dealing with as the car behind having more downforce. Once you get to the corner is definitely going to allow you to just run closer to the car in front, regardless of how whether the the air is is dirtier by a little bit or not that would that would at least be my expectation and the other part of this is that i think it potentially frees cars up frees different teams up with the shift with the change that's been made to be able to run more than positive two degrees on the rear wing you've just got more options basically to efficiently trim and add downforce and whatever even in race running um, than you would have in the past so I, you know, my, my expectation at least would be that this is better for better for the show or whatever, however you want to kind of, you know, call that in terms of cars being able to run closer together further and further back through a pack. Yes, JR, it's going to be very interesting for sure to see what happens with all of the aero parts, which as I said, you can read more about on the hyphen race.com. Definitely go out and check our recent podcast. We spoke to Marcus Ericsson recently to kick off the month of May, obviously last year's Indy 500 winner and was the points leader up until Alex Blow uh, ripping that from him 
this weekend. He talks about how the race has affected him and his career, amongst many other topics. You can also go back and listen to some of our more historical episodes. We've got The Beast, which is about the 1994 Indy 500 won by Al Jr., perhaps the only car that wheel spun in fifth gear uh, and higher down the, the straight at Indy. We've also done an episode with Rick Mears last year, which was a lot of fun as well. And you can go and check out all the features on the website. We'll have plenty coming up before practice kicks off on Tuesday to get you ready for the week, what to be expecting, as JR has helped out with already on this episode. And don't forget, if you've got any questions around the Indy 500, anything, whether it's uh, down to the area parts we've discussed or anything to do with your favourite drivers or the event itself, you can ask us questions on social media or you can email us messages or voice notes to be included on the pod. You can do that by emailing podcasts at the-race.com. We always like to hear your questions and suggestions for any future content. So we always welcome that. We'll be back soon as the month of May cranks it up a gear over the next two weeks. The Athletic.